one of the reasons why I'm here talking to you today, um, because I see patients, as you probably do, every single day in my practice, who if they had had straightened teeth and not had uh, malocclusion or crowding or spacing or whatever, um, they probably wouldn't be uh, in the situation that they're in. And I'm not going to say in any, any time today, my point is not that these things, um, that malocclusion or crowding or spacing is causing these problems or causing periodontal disease, but it's a huge factor. And if it wasn't there, then, you know, they would have an easier time trying to clean themselves, clean their teeth and um, definitely wouldn't have the severity of bone loss that they have and would make my treatment on my end much easier. So um, I would like at the end of my um, presentation today for you to kind of keep some of these things in mind when you're seeing your patient and maybe have some tips on ways to talk to your patients about getting these things treated and maybe also identify these things a little bit more. There's going to be some factors here that you might not be realizing is contributing to their disease. So hopefully it'll open your eyes a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so probably all of you either have an iPhone or some sort of smartphone, right? And you've all probably already used it today. And it wasn't to call somebody, right? Um, the, the iPhone is an amazing piece of technology. I have mine right here because I'm always using it. I don't even wear a watch. I just have my phone on me all the time. And I've already probably today used four or five different apps, right? Some of my favorite apps are some of the apps that I use most commonly. This is a screenshot. It's my dog in the background. Screenshot of my phone. I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that you can deposit a check. You can just take a picture of it and deposit it into your bank account. Check your bank account balance, which I needed to do after last night. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I can log into Dentrix. You know, I can check my software. I can check, okay, what am I doing on Monday morning? Who am I seeing? Uh, if a patient calls or emails, I can let them know when their appointment's going to be. If I meet somebody and they say, you know, I just broke a tooth, I really need to see you, you're a dentist, can you help me? Sure. Oh, I have a cancellation at 9 o'clock on Monday. Would you like to come in at 9 o'clock on Monday? And I can just do it right there. I can set up and approve my payroll. You know, it's an amazing tool. Some other ones, um, you know, maps. I had a friend invite me to his uh, 4th of July barbecue party. And... Uh, <clears throat> He started giving me directions to his house. I'm like, no, dude, all I need is the address. Um, and then, you know, Waze, I don't know if you guys know about that, but living in San Diego, I need a lot of traffic apps to, so I can avoid the traffic, improving my quality of life because I'm not going to be sitting on the, you know, on the freeway forever. There was a fire the other day. There was a fire that broke out on the back road that I usually take to avoid the freeway. And because I checked my app, 10 minutes ago, it had started 10 minutes prior, somebody checked in and said, fire just started on the 67, so I was able to take a different way home instead of spending two hours sitting on this road that had no way to turn around or exit or anything. Netflix, Hulu, like these are all my, my favorite apps that improve my quality of life by using my cell phone. So using my, my iPhone, it's an amazing piece of technology that improves my quality of life. And the parallel here is Invisalign is also an amazing piece of technology that can improve the quality of life for your patients. Um, and I'm not just going to talk about, or I'm not going to talk at all, actually, about how um, Invisalign can improve the aesthetics and dramatically improve the appearance of your patients and give them confidence 
I mean, that's really, really awesome. And that, yes, that definitely improves their quality of life. But I want to talk more about the oral health benefits of correcting the malocclusion. So let's talk about some of the basics <clears throat> before we get involved all the way down into all the oral health stuff and the quality of life, systemic um, well-being improvements. And let's talk about some of the basics. Let's talk about texting, calling, emailing, some of the first things that you have to figure out how to do when you get your new phone. So when you start off with Invisalign, how are you identifying your Invisalign candidates? How are you screening? What do you do? Is it part of your new patient exam? Is it part of what, you know, it just kind of happens when they're sitting in your chair, when you're cleaning their teeth, you notice, oh, you've got some crowding. Have you ever thought about Invisalign? I don't know if you have a formal system. I'm sure this weekend you've learned a lot and your doctors have learned a lot about how to set up a formal system in your office to identify these cases. And some of the traditional things that you're probably looking for, canine relationships, you know, class one, class three, um, any cross bites, over bites, over jets, deep bites. These are some of the traditional things. I know, actually, all of these I pulled off the uh, official Invisalign uh, diagnosis uh, check sheet screening tool. So I know that these are the things that Invisalign is helping you to be able to identify these patients. What about a marginal ridge discrepancy? Is that a, probably not a common word that you will write down in a chart? I write it every day, MRDs. But this is another thing that you can be looking for when you're screening. Open contacts, not, not just spacing in the anterior, but actual open contacts between posterior teeth. Occlusal factors, this is actually an occlusal interference. An occlusal interference is when you have contact on the non-working side during excursive movements. So I, don't, I check this, this is part of my normal periodontal exam that I check on every single patient during their new patient exam. And you just have them slide to the right, and if there's teeth hitting on the left, that's an occlusal interference. If it's actually the first tooth to hit, and this side is actually uh, opening, discluding on this side, on the working side, that's uh, an occlusal interference. So this is another thing that you can be looking at. Yeah, this is in crossbite. You can have an occlusal interference that's not in crossbite. And it's also a marginal ridge discrepancy, which means the marginal ridge of the adjacent teeth are not aligned. It's on the top as well as on the bottom. Um, crowding, I know that during the Invisalign exam, you know, you'd probably identify this and be able to talk to that person about how Invisalign can fix their crowding. But what about, when I think of crowding, I think of root approximation and that those teeth are just squished so tied up next to each other. Like in this case, I don't know if you can see it really well, but this is one of those cases where the maxillary molars, kind of that back molar is kicked out a little bit and it forces the roots really close together. And you can't get a scalar in there. You can't, I can't get a cavitron in there. And when they end up developing bone loss because you can't help them clean in there, maybe they're not a great flosser like this guy was. And when I try to do my periodontal treatment, I can't even get in there, even with, with the gums reflected. So this case, actually, I sent him to the orthodontist, and he actually got bracketed and got that tooth moved back. Here's another thing that you can be looking for. When you see these abfraction lesions, you know, actual pieces of the teeth have broken off, that's evidence of occlusal trauma. When you see something like that, that can identify you. That should click something in your head. I should talk to this person about Invisalign, or maybe I should, you know, mention to the dentist, you know, I'm seeing these abfractive, abfractive lesions, 
this can be a sign of occlusal trauma. Should we look into this a little bit further and do a more complete analysis? Mucogingival defects. When you see recession like this, that can be another thing to click your head. Maybe there's something more going on here. Maybe this person can benefit from Invisalign. Root prominence, all three of these that actually also have the most uh, recession are also more prominent roots. They're actually outside the alveolar housing. So these things in periodontics, we call these contributing factors. And when you're looking at somebody who has periodontal disease or has gingival inflammation, you're trying to figure out, you know, what is contributing to their periodontal disease? Why do they have periodontal disease? Obviously, we know if they had cleaned a little bit better, been a little bit more diligent on flossing and brushing, gotten cleanings more often, then they wouldn't be in this situation. They wouldn't have attachment loss and inflammation. But what are some things that are making it more difficult for them to clean their teeth? Uh, those are all contributing factors, and there's a lot of them, but I'm just going to focus on some of these today. So a marginal ridge discrepancy, this is a, a severe, can you guys even see that pointer? This is um, obviously a pretty severe example, but I think it gets the point across really well, that in areas where there's a marginal ridge discrepancy, where the posterior teeth are not aligned properly um, in a vertical dimension, they have more attachment loss, they have deeper pockets, more bone loss, more inflammation, more bleeding. And we've known this for some time. This is a study from 1986. Um, <clears throat> it also means, so when the marginal ridge is not lined up, the CEJ is not lined up. So here's just a couple more examples of a marginal ridge discrepancy. You're probably not looking for these things when you're doing your uh, Invisalign screening exam or just during your normal you know, checkups. But start looking for these. Start noticing these things. When you're probing and you see a pocket, look at that tooth. Are those teeth aligned? Are the CEJs aligned? Are the marginal ridges aligned? If they're not, that's a patient that can benefit from Invisalign, that you might not be having that conversation with the patient had you not noticed this. So <clears throat> when the uh, marginal ridges are not aligned, that means the CEJs are not aligned. If the CEJs are not aligned, you have a built-in like bony defect. You have a built-in pocket. So if you look at this, the, C, the alveolar bone should follow the CEJs. And if the teeth are lined up, then the bone will be nice and flat or nice and straight across. But if the tooth is tipped a little bit and the CEJs are not lined up, that means the bone's not going to be lined up. The tissue's still going to be up here. That's a built-in pocket right there. If this slope is greater than 30 degrees, then that's going to be a, a built-in pocket. So here's another patient that would benefit from orthodontic movement. Now, I don't know if all of these cases that I'm going to show you are going to, you know, are specifically Invisalign candidates, but there's certainly candidates that would benefit from orthodontic movement and correction of their teeth. Whether or not they be an actual Invisalign candidate is up for the dentist to decide and between Invisalign and the dentist to work out to see if it's too severe for Invisalign. Open contacts. So when you have an open contact around the posterior teeth, that doesn't mean you're automatically going to have a pocket. You're automatically going to have bone loss. But in an area where there's an open contact and food gets jammed in there and they have food impaction, 
those are areas that are going to have more bone loss. They're going to be more susceptible to getting a pocket in that area. And in fact, when there's something like this, and somebody, a dentist, sends me a case like this, actually part of the treatment, in order for me to have successful regeneration and to fix that area, the contact has to be closed. Whether it's from a restoration um, or orthodontic movement, of course, I would prefer that orthodontically everything was corrected the way it's supposed to be, not put a huge crown on a possible virgin tooth. But regardless, it needs to be fixed. Here's another open contact here. This is a study of 104 adults. They had open contacts on one side and no, you know, a unilateral open contact. There's nothing on the other side. And they measured signs of inflammation, like the gingival in index, which is an index that we use in epidemiological studies to identify areas of inflammation, curricular um, bleeding, so bleeding on probing, uh, the probing depth, attachment level, calculus, food impaction. So in 104 of these adults, they're looking at all of these in the open contacts and the closed contacts. And in the open contacts, they definitely had a significant increase in probing depth and attachment loss. So I'm not making these things up. This is a, a patient of mine. He's actually now got an implant. Um, but you can see he's got an open contact here. He's also got an open contact here. In this area of the open contact, he was always complaining that he had food impaction. He's getting some food stuck in that area. Obviously, he's got periodontal disease in other areas, so this is a periodontal patient. Always, he's been on a three-month perio maintenance, and then he kind of fell off for a while, and then he came back. And um, now, with the food impaction here, and had an increased probe death, more bone loss in this area, it only took a little bit of bone loss for that bacteria to get into the furcation. You can see this premolar's got two roots. The furcation was about right here. And he just, just a little bit of mild bone loss, and it was enough attachment loss for the bacteria to get into that furcation and cause an abscess. It was no longer accessible for hygiene. It abscessed. It caused severe bone loss, mobility on the tooth, ended up having to remove the tooth. Maybe if he hadn't had that open contact and the teeth were properly lined and nice and tight like they're supposed to be, he wouldn't have had the food impaction, maybe wouldn't have had the pocket, maybe wouldn't have lost the tooth. Here's another area where you have the open contact and severe bone loss with food impaction in this area. Again, now the bacteria is all the way into the furcations. On the distal furcation here and the mesial furcation here, he's got grade two furcation defects, which are very, very difficult, if not impossible, to treat and get successful regeneration. This open contact played a significant role in that disease process. Here's an open contact and a marginal ridge discrepancy. And you see the calculus on the root right here. You can see severe bone loss around this tooth. It came through here. It's a contributing factor. That open contact was a contributing factor to getting food impaction in that area and accelerating the disease process. Here's another, here's an example of uh, an excursive interference that is not a crossbite. When this person slides into, you know, so the left side, so when they're sliding into the right working, this non-working side, this plunger cusp right here and this cusp right here, as well as this area, those are going to hit. So that tooth is going to have some occlusal trauma as they're trying to move into excursive. That tooth is getting excess um, force put on it and non-axial forces. And it, it's been shown, I'll show you a couple studies, that the excursive interferences, non-working contacts, those are teeth that are also 
more susceptible to having periodontal disease, having attachment loss and bone loss. So here's a study that was done a while ago in 65, a Yodelson man. But this is a, one of our classic studies that we look at in periodontics. And these are both periodontists, and they were looking at all their periodontal patients in their practice. And they looked at models and x-rays of 54 of these patients, and they were looking for non-working contacts. And they found that at least half of them had non-working contacts. So this is a very, very prevalent thing. Probably at least half the patients that you're seeing in your office have a non-working contact. In areas that have non-working contacts, they have more attachment loss and more bone loss. So if you fix these non-working contacts, may, or if they just didn't have them to begin with, then they're less likely to have the periodontal disease. Another study, Nunn and Harrell, um, 89 patients in private practice. Again, these are all periodontal patients. 307 of 2,000 some odd teeth, which is about 13%, had occlusal, dis now they're terming it occlusal discrepancies. It's pretty much synonymous. But these teeth also had more um, attachment loss, more mobility, and a poor prognosis than teeth that didn't have these non-working contacts. So when I'm talking about these non-working contacts, again, just to reiterate, I know that you're probably not screening for these things during your normal Invisalign or occlusal exam, but keep your eye open to them. I want you to be more aware of some additional factors that could be playing a role in your patient's periodontal disease and if treated, would help them manage their periodontal disease. So this is, a, this is a study, again, this is Harold and Nunn, but a different study, and they're watching their patients over 15 years, their periodontal patients, and they noted that patients with um, untreated occlusal discrepancies had more bone loss over the long term and a poorer prognosis over the long term than teeth that had an occlusal discrepancy that was treated or no occlusal discrepancy. So we have a lot of this information to tell us that these are actual, you know, these, these are, are, it's a real phenomenon and it should be identified and should be treated. Occlusal trauma. So uh, a non-working contact can cause occlusal trauma, but there's other ways that you can have occlusal trauma too, like the severely deep bite. And what occlusal trauma is, is it's excessive force on a tooth, and it causes trauma to the PDL and the bone around the tooth. It doesn't necessarily cause attachment, actually it does not cause attachment loss. When you have occlusal trauma, it can reach um, a level of stability, and it can stay that way. You can have a wide PDL, it can have a little frematis, it can have a little mobility, and it can just stay like that forever. But in the presence of periodontal disease or inflammation, that's when that periodontal attachment loss occurs, and it occurs very, very fast. So in the presence of occlusal trauma, periodontal disease is exacerbated. So here's a little bit of the etiology. How does it work with occlusal trauma? Um, there's microscopic changes in the vascularization, right? The tooth is being banged on, essentially. That's what I tell my patients. Um, the fibroblasts and the collagen fibers get disrupted. The osteoclasts start coming in start initiating some bone resorption. You get necrosis of the periodontal tissue. Osteoclasts in the bone marrow itself start breaking down on the inside of the alveolar bone, which is called undermining bone resorption. And then there's this adapted response of the periodontium. It can reach a steady state. And it can have frematis and increased PDL space, but it doesn't cause the pocket formation. It's always the inflammation that stimulates that pocket formation. 
and we kind of already went over this, that removing the risk factor of occlusal discrepancies um, significantly changes the progression of the disease. Uh, root approximation and crowding is definitely a risk factor for periodontal disease, as you know. And again, it's not causing the periodontal disease. There's plenty of people out there that have crowding and teeth all smushed up next to each other, and they don't have any bone loss. But in 30 to 50% of your patients, which is 30 to 50% of the population in general, that are susceptible to periodontal disease, these issues are a major factor. I see patients every single day in my office, again, that have that crowding or roots too close together. If they hadn't had that, they'd be able to clean better and they wouldn't have the bone loss that they have now. And it would be easier for me to treat them. So it's an impediment to self-performed and prof professional hygiene. It's hard to get a scaler in there. It's hard to get a Cavitron in there. <clears throat> oh. So when they're really close together, there might not be any bone between those teeth. That's why it's a problem. And it's been studied a lot. Here's a study of about 1,200 men. They followed up for 23 years and took x-rays of, um, of the mandibular incisors. And they found that the average interradicular space, which is the average space between roots to be about a millimeter in those anterior incisors, that's not very much space. A Gracie cura is 0.75 millimeters. So <clears throat> if that's the average, that means half of them are less than a millimeter in between those two teeth. And they found that sites that <clears throat> were less than 0.6 were more likely to have bone loss in between them. So this is proof or evidence that this is a factor, having those teeth crowded and too close together. <clears throat> and if it's less than 0.8, it is definitely considered a significant risk factor for bone loss in those incisors. So here's a case, isn't this lovely, all this composite that was added up here? Instead of getting the teeth straight the way they're supposed to be, let's make the hygiene even more difficult. I actually took that tooth out a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> it had such severe bone loss around this tooth. And you know, when you see crowding, you, you know that it's more difficult for you to clean in there. It's also more difficult for them to floss in there. And it's not enough to just tell them, you gotta floss better, you gotta floss better. It's hard, and they're not as motivated as we are to keep them clean. So talk to these patients. Every single one of these patients with, with lower crowding, you should be talking to about orthodontics and how it can improve their situation. I tell my patients, I know it's hard for you to floss in there. It's hard for me to floss in there. Let's get these straightened out. I have conversations with my patients multiple times a day, getting my patients to sign up for ortho or go talk to their, their dentist about doing Invisalign. I don't do it in my office, but I get them back to their dentist or refer them to orthodontist to get some orthodontic treatment or at least a consultation on getting them straightened out. So here's another case. There's lots of inflammation down in here. This patient's also a smoker. Not that motivated to do hygiene, but you know, this is a tricky area. When a tooth is twisted like this, that's a tricky area to get floss in there. Root approximation. Those are really, really close together. This patient has a lot of bone loss in that area, has sensitivity, has recession in that area. Has, they went to a, another periodontist, tried to get a gum graft. It didn't work because there's no bone in there. There's, there's nothing. You can even get um, a suture needle between those two teeth to hold the gum graft in place. And this is, this is the same case I showed you earlier where actually I had to send them to the orthodontist. The only way to stop this bone loss from occurring was to get this tooth to be straightened out and get those roots kicked back out. 
Here's another case of root approximation. This is, you know, a patient that you could talk to about Invisalign, getting that tooth derotated. But it's not just about, you know, making her smile prettier, which is what she was mainly concerned about, but she also had a 10 millimeter pocket right here. Look how close those roots are squished up next to each other. I couldn't get a scaler in there. It was very, very difficult to clean, very difficult to get floss in there. After reflecting the flap, removing all this calculus, trying to do some bone grafting in there, part of her treatment, is, part of her periodontal treatment is derotating that tooth, opening up that space, because this is just going to happen again if that tooth remains that way. So I want you to think a little bit less about aesthetics when you look at crowding, but think about the periodontal consequences, which you guys probably are. Here? Oh, surgery. Absolutely. Don't move teeth if there's inflammation. If there's a pocket, you do not want to move those teeth. If you think about the biology of orthodontic tooth movement, you put tension and pressure on either side of the tooth. You're going to put pressure on the bone. It should resorb and it has tension behind it. The periodontal ligament is pulling on the bone as it's moving, and that bone should be depositing to fill in that space. In periodontal disease, it doesn't. If there's inflammation present, that bone, the biology is all disrupted. It doesn't happen correctly, and periodontal bone loss happens exponentially, really, really fast. Never move teeth if there's inflammation present, yeah. So here's another case, this crowding and root prominence. So when you see things like this, I, you know, this case was sent to me for um, evaluate for tissue grafting. Okay, so I start talking to this patient. They've got way more problems than just this gingival recession. So I start talking to her, you know, has, did your dentist talk to you about orthodontics? Have you um, been talking to an orthodontist? She goes, oh, I don't care. The front teeth, you can tell a little bit here, the front teeth aren't that bad, the, the maxillary anteriors. They're pretty much aligned. They're all right. She's cool with this. She's all right with this. She doesn't care how they look. And she actually doesn't even care about all the recession. And I told her this tooth looks like both of these two teeth are, look like they're just about to like fall out her mouth, and she didn't care about that either. So maybe this isn't a great candidate just from their uh, lack of compliance and overall caring. Uh, <clears throat> but because these teeth are outside the alveolar housing and they have so much recession, the, well, because they're outside the alveolar housing, is why they have uh, more recession. And I'll talk to you in a minute about how recession is actually a form of periodontal disease. But if this person had nice straight teeth and this didn't have this crowding, they wouldn't have all this recession. They wouldn't probably be at risk of losing these teeth. You can see that you know, this is a very difficult area to floss. This is a very difficult area to floss. Not flossing here. So with recession, Recession is a form of periodontal disease, um, and actually if you have, let's say you have two millimeters of recession and a millimeter of, of probing depth, that's considered mild periodontitis. If you have three millimeters of recession and two millimeters of probing depth, that's five millimeters of attachment loss. That periodontal ligament started at the CEJ when that tooth erupted, and it has gone down five millimeters. I know we don't usually think about recession as a form of periodontal disease, but it is. And the way that it happens is um, it's usually in an area of very thin tissue, right? If there's very thin tissue over that root, there's probably a dehiscence of the bone. So there's probably no bone over the front side of that root. And it's just a very, very thin amount of tissue. And there's probably not much collagen. There's not many blood vessels. 
and then just normal trauma from brushing. You can also, um, I talked to my patients about the abrasiveness of their toothpaste as well. But even just normal trauma from normal brushing can be enough to cause some inflammation of that gingival margin. And because there's no collagen and, or not that much collagen and not that many blood vessels, it can't heal from it and it just recedes. It just disintegrates and starts receding. And um, it's a process that's called ischemic necrosis. There's no blood vessels to help support and to heal that area, so instead it just dies. Now we talked about that. So normally, this would be a normal process, like disease process for um, attachment loss. But if you think about if there's no bone here, in this, or very, very thin bone and very, very thin tissue, if you get inflammation in the gingival sulcus and you get some inflammation here, that inflammation, the epithelium actually proliferates and it can meet in the center. This is the theory of ischemic necrosis and how recession develops. This area proliferates, this area proliferates, then they meet and then the tip of the gingiva dies. And that's how it progresses down. So here's a case just demonstrating how thin this tissue is. There's no bone on the front side of these. These teeth are, are flared out. Here's another one. Again, this case was sent to me, evaluate for tissue graft. Was never discussed with them for orthodontists. And so after I treated this graft, actually before I treated it, I mentioned to him, we need to get this tooth back in line. We need to get this crowding fixed. This graft is not going to stay. We can do it now to eliminate the inflammation to get the tissue healthy again, but we got to fix this crowding as part of your periodontal therapy. Here's another case, root prominence. This tooth is really shoved out there. <clears throat> and this tooth is really, he actually, um, I did tissue graft there and there, and then he went through Invisalign and got this all straightened out, and it's just gorgeous now. But the Invisalign treatment was my suggestion to the dentist and to the patient after I did the tissue grafts, let's get these teeth lined up, let's get them healthy, let's set them up for success. It wasn't just about aesthetics. Although afterwards he realized, wow, I'm really, he was so happy with how, what a dramatic change it made aesthetically, uh, but it's not the reason why we did it. So with mucogingival defects, there's a strong correlation between the position in the arch and the recession defects and teeth that are either facially or lingually displaced in the arch definitely have more recession and because they have a dehiscence of the cortical plate. A lot of teeth, particularly the mandibular teeth, have a natural dehiscence. They're naturally, do you all know what dehiscence? Yeah? So it means that there's no bone over the front side of that root. When I open the flap, and this, even if I'm not doing a tissue graph, I'm not opening a flap for the reason of recession, when I'm open flaps, a lot of times there is no bone over the front side of those roots. And then if the tooth is displaced facially or lingually, again, it's pushed outside the alveolar housing, and then the tissue is stretched very, very thin over it, and it's more likely to have periodontal disease. It's more likely to have recession. So I want you guys to wake up a little bit. So why don't we take about a 10-minute Turn to the people next to you. Some of you don't have anyone next to you. But talk to your neighbor and <clears throat> do you, I want to know, do you believe that malocclusion, all these things that I've been talking about, is this really a factor in your head to periodontal disease? I saw some of you guys nodding. 
Um, and do you think that correction, you know, using Invisalign or orthodontics to fix these things is really something that's realistic in your practice? Are you already doing this? These contributing factors that I've discussed, are these things that you're already looking for and that you're already aware of or is this new to you? And then how is the orthodontic correction of these defects going to benefit the systemic health and the overall quality of life and overall well-being of, of your patients? So take about 10 minutes, chat it up a little bit. We're about halfway through, so hang in there. Okay, so we've already talked about, you know, um, questions one and two in the beginning part. Um, but I get the feeling that most of you do believe that malocclusion is a factor in periodontal health, right? You're seeing it in practice every day. And that correcting these, um, straightening the teeth and correcting the malocclusion will definitely improve the periodontal prognosis of the tooth. But what about systemic health? When you're talking to your patients about Invisalign or orthodontics and correcting this crowding or marginal ridge discrepancies or open contacts or whatever, when you're having these conversations with your patients, do you even take it into the systemic health level? Yeah? Good. Well, you're a hygienist. Of course you do. I would expect nothing less. So I'm going to give you a little refresher and kind of where we're at right now with periodontal disease and systemic health. So when you're thinking about orthodontics and you're thinking about occlusion, I don't want you just thinking about, you know, um, aesthetics. Obviously, we already talked about that. I don't want you just thinking about oral health, but take it another level and take it to the systemic health level. I'm not, talking, I'm not going to be standing up here and I'm not saying that crooked teeth or malocclusion is going to give you a heart attack. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a definite relationship and that's what I want to show you. So with periodontal health and malocclusion, this is a study um, of 300 patients and they looked at overbite, overjet, you know, all these different elements that we've already talked about. And <clears throat> the overbite, overjet and kind of skeletal relationship they did not find it related to plaque or gingival inflammation, but teeth that were tilted, rotated, displaced, either buccally or lingually, and crowded teeth um, had significantly more plaque, significantly more calculus, and more gingival inflammation. And this is a systematic review. There's not a lot of studies that look at um, crowding and orthodontic treatment or malocclusion and relating it to periodontal disease. These are the only two that I could find. <clears throat> so this is a systematic review, which means they take, look at the whole body of evidence, all the scientific research that's out there right now, and they sift through it, and they try to find out the answer to these questions based on other research. So it's not just one study, it's a study on studies. So it's a really, really high level of evidence. So this is a systematic review of 25 studies. 19 of them um, did report that there's more periodontal disease in patients with malocclusion. Six of them found that there's more periodontal, periodontal uh, problems in patients with malocclusions. Two of them found that there's more gingivitis with the patients that have malocclusion, even when they adjust for oral hygiene. I think that's huge. So even in patients that are equally motivated at plaque removal, they're really good at flossing, really good at brushing, everything being the same, teeth that are more crowded have more inflammation. Now this is where the body of evidence lacks, is does orthodontic treatment improve the periodontal health? 
Well, we really, there's really no good studies out there on that. It's a very, very difficult thing to study. I mean, how you have to track somebody all the way down the line. How do you know if they had, um, you know, you can't force somebody to get periodontal disease and then, you know, correct it and try to monitor it that way. It's a very difficult thing to control. And it would require a really long study, like a 20-year study, in order to monitor the progression of bone loss. So we really don't have any good, solid evidence connecting that direct link. So you kind of have to put the pieces together in your head and just know that these things are all related. So the bottom line, straight teeth, proper alignment, easier to do home care, easier for professional visits, and more predictable when advanced perio is needed. When a CT graft is, you know, connective tissue graft is needed on a tooth, if it's lined up properly, it's going to have a better result than a tooth that's really, really prominent. Sometimes I have to graft these teeth two or three times to try to get everything, you know, get enough care and nice tissue, get the tissue healthy enough on a tooth that's severely displaced. There's just no blood supply to feed that graft. So let's talk about systemic health now. Periodontal uh, disease. Let's do a little refresher here. <clears throat> so what is periodontal disease? It's a plaque-induced inflammation that damages the attachment apparatus of the tooth. It's damage to the PDL, the connective tissue attachment, to the bone around the tooth. How does it happen? So the bacterial biofilm, um, it's very rare that I get to have this conversation with other dental colleagues. And I'm, I'm going to force myself not to use the layman's terms the way that I describe it to my patients. It's actually exciting that I get to use the, the real words. Uh, <clears throat> so um, bacterial biofilm forms on the tooth. These bacteria have a lot of virulence factors. They can have um, structures on their cell wall or their cell membrane that are directly irritating to your tissues. They also produce um, endotoxin, which is LPS, um, which is very, very irritating to the tissues. They produce a lot of um, enzymes, collagenases, metalloproteinases, lots of different acids that are very, very irritating to your tissue. When the bacteria in that biofilm are there for long enough, and they're, um, they grow enough in number. So you have <clears throat> the primary colonizers, right, that form on the tooth. And then once those primary colonizers can attach to the tooth, there's only two bacteria that can actually physically attach to the tooth that uh, produce the glycocalyx that they can attach to the tooth. But then they start secreting, like flypaper, I call it, um, <clears throat> a really, really sticky substance that allows all the other bacteria the P. gingivalis and intermedia and forsythia, all these bacteria can now attach to the tooth as well. It takes a while for those bacteria to start colonizing and growing in that biofilm, about two weeks. So once the plaque is there for two weeks, now it's really nasty and it's really irritating to the tissues. And it stimulates inflammation in the gingival tissues because all those enzymes, it's not the bacteria that are going into the tissues. It's their byproducts. It's all the enzymes and acids that they're producing that are irritating and causing an inflammatory reaction in the tissue. So it starts out as gingivitis, as you know. If that plaque is still there and it's not removed, then that inflammation gets more and more severe and it progresses to the point where it starts entering into the collagen and it starts causing collagen breakdown. It causes the um, connective tissue attachment to detach from the tooth. And that's when you start getting the pocket formation. If it's allowed to sit there for long enough, then the inflammation spreads down into the PDL, it spreads into the bone, and it stimulates the osteoclast to start resorbing. 
it stimulates um, your, uh, <clears throat> your T cells and uh, neutrophils, PMNs, macrophages, all these cells are then stimulated and they start secreting all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which we'll talk about in a minute. And that stimulates collagen breakdown. And this process just keeps going and going and going until the source of the inflammation is removed. The source of the inflammation being that biofilm. Once that biofilm is removed, the source of the inflammation is gone, then your body's allowed to heal. Now, we know that some people are more susceptible to periodontal disease than others. Some people have horrible hygiene. They've probably never picked up a piece of floss, and they're never going to get periodontal disease. They might have cavities and other issues, but there's a strong um, genetic factor involved here in periodontal disease, as you guys know. And where that factor plays is your immune system. How does your immune system and your immune cells and your inflammation react to the presence of biofilm? How does it react to the presence of these different bacteria? That's where that link is. That's where everyone's different. That's where some people get way more severe periodontal disease than other people, where you have the mild, moderate, severe, you even have aggressive periodontal disease. The differences between those is how the inflammation is occurring in their body. I tell my patients, some people swell more than other people, some people bruise, everybody's got you know, different levels of inflammation. When you're talking about systemic health, and you, when I speak to my patients about how periodontal disease are related to their systemic health, you link it through the inflammation. People that have other inflammatory diseases, like um, arthritis, some people have, some of my patients have fibromyalgia, some people have um, <clears throat> lupus, you know, different people have different inflammatory, you know, people that have a lot of allergies, um, like hay fever type allergies, those people tend to have more sensitive skin, right? They also have skin allergies. Those people also have very, very um, delicate tissues. They might have more recession because their tissues are just naturally easily irritated and easily inflamed. They also might have more bone loss. So all these things are interrelated. So when you have the, um, <clears throat> the when you're talking to your patients or in your own mind, how periodontal uh, disease is related to systemic health, you can have um, direct bacterial infiltration into the bloodstream, um, which is called bacteremia. And this doesn't just happen when we're probing or when we're cleaning their teeth. This has actually happened. They've um, tested, they've taken blood samples from people um, that have even just mild periodontal disease and chewing gum or chewing food is enough to increase the bacterial infiltration into their blood. So that's why they changed the um, antibiotic prophylactic recommendations from the American Heart Association um, because they found that originally they thought, oh, well, when you probe or when you clean, you're forcing that bacteria down into the sulcus and it's getting into the blood and that's what's causing these infected heart valves and um, cardiac problems, endocarditis, but that's not the fact. Even when you chew, that can be enough to push the bacteria and get it into the bloodstream and um, stimulate the endocarditis. So the things that we're doing, unless they have really severe, I mean, they've had a congenital defect of the heart that was repaired and the repair failed. I mean, if you read all the guidelines on the antibiotic prophylaxis now, it's pretty out there, it's pretty severe. Not many people need antibiotic prophylaxis anymore. Okay, let's get back on track now. Um, <clears throat> So um, you can also have the bacterial toxins directly entering the, the bloodstream. So the bacteria themselves might not be in the bloodstream, but all their toxins, specifically endotoxin. Endotoxin is a byproduct of a lot of bacteria. 
And <clears throat> when it enters the bloodstream, it can really cause a lot of inflammation. Um, neutrophils um, in the inflammatory, so neutrophils in your tissue, PMNs in your tissue that are excited from the biofilm and they're inflamed and they're releasing all these cytokines. They're releasing a lot of, these are some of the, the most, um, like the strongest uh, cytokines that they release. You have the tissue necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha, TNF-beta, interferon gamma, interleukin-1, interleukin-4, interleukin-6. There's a lot of different um, interleukins and cytokines that are released in the gingival tissue. This is all happening in the gingival tissue. And <clears throat> all of these cytokines now are entering the bloodstream. So you have elevated pro-inflammatory cytokines in the bloodstream. And this is how it's linked to all those other diseases because all, you know, that we'll be talking about in a minute, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, premature birth, you know, pregnancy issues, and a myriad of other things that they haven't been able to find a direct link. Um, <clears throat> but they're, you know, when they think about, or when you think about, how are all these things related? And when you're talking to your patients about periodontal disease and systemic health, you tell them your body is fighting a battle in your gums and it's been happening for 20 or 30 years. Your body's been fighting this low-grade infection. And you didn't even know about it because it, it doesn't hurt and you don't know it's there. But because your body has constantly been fighting this, your body is like on edge. Your immune system is just going, going, going. And that's got to have some effects elsewhere, and it does. <clears throat> Other cytokines, um, fibrinogen and C-reactive protein, which is CRP, um, these cytokines are um, released from the liver, so the inflammation of the tissues in your gum, <clears throat> in, your, in your gingival tissues. Um, the cytokines are released into your bloodstream to stimulate your liver then to produce these acute phase reactive proteins, this fibrinogen and CRP, which are also very, very potent cytokines that affect other organs. You can also have, because of all these increased cytokines in your blood, you have more platelet aggregation, so you're more likely to get a clot. You have thickened endothelium and vasoconstriction. Your blood vessels, the lining of your blood vessels, should only be one or two cells thick. In reaction to all these cytokines and having this chronic inflammation of your gingival tissues, that endothelium gets thicker. So the vascular space for these uh, blood vessels to pass through, or I mean for the... Um, blood cells to pass through is smaller, and they're more likely to get stuck in clot. <clears throat> so you have increased blood viscosity. But you also have vasoconstriction. Having pro-inflammatory cytokines floating around your blood all the time causes your, all your little blood vessels to constrict. These are all ways that periodontal disease and chronic inflammation is related to all these different conditions that we keep finding more and more about. You also have increased insulin resistance. So that TNF-alpha, TNF-beta, interferon gamma, some of those really, really potent cytokines that I mentioned actually directly affect the insulin receptor on your cells. And the insulin receptor, I kind of explain it to my patients, it's like a gate to allow glucose and sugar into your cells where it's needed. It's fine and dandy to have all the sugar in your blood, but your cells are what need it for the cellular metabolism. And the insulin receptor is a gate that opens and allows glucose into the cell for, that, um, for the muscle cells to utilize that sugar and for the metabolism to work properly. Well, when you have all these cytokines, particularly TNF-beta and TNF-alpha, they physically block 
that gate, and that gate can't open, or it doesn't open as well, and it doesn't open when it's supposed to. So all that blood, uh, sugar that's in your blood is not getting into the cells. This is how chronic inflammation is related to diabetes. If you have periodontal disease, your diabetes is poor controlled, you have poor um, uh, insulin control, glucose control, and when you relieve the inflammation, your diabetes can actually get better, your blood sugar can actually get better. And they've done a lot of tests on this, they've done a lot of um, research, and there's been some research to show it, which I'll go over in a minute. So like you have on that little sheet, that little handout is just something that you can take home with you and kind of glance at, you know, if you need a little refresher, you need a couple talking points with your patients. You know, what did she say? Because sometimes we forget we know that periodontal disease is related to systemic health, but sometimes we forget, you know, how to rattle some of those off. Um, <clears throat> so cardiovascular disease, we know that diabetes, pregnancy outcomes, preeclampsia, that's hypertension or high blood pressure during pregnancy. Um, and it's... Uh, significantly related to miscarriages and having difficulties during pregnancies. It's the number one um, cause of miscarriages is preeclampsia. Um, premature birth, low birth weight babies, all these things are very, very well documented that in the presence of periodontal disease, you're more likely to have or more susceptible for these other diseases. <clears throat> for cardiovascular disease, the big connector is CRP. If you look at the cardiovascular research, the CRP levels are, are, is a significant risk factor. They will screen for CRP, and if you have elevated CRP, uh, the cardiologist will automatically be more aggressive with your treatment. Well, periodontal disease can increase your CRP. Having elevated CRP levels put you at higher risk of having a stroke or a heart attack. Uh, <clears throat> here's one study. Um, it's fairly recent, too, where they looked at um, plaques from carotid st uh, stenosis and atheromas. They looked at the autopsies, so people that had died from having um, strokes, and they would go through their blood vessels and look at these plaques, and they actually found periodontal pathogens. 44% of them had at least one periodontal pathogen, which is like P. gingivalis, or a bacteria that's specific to the mouth, specific to periodontal disease. It's only found in the mouth and they found these bacteria in the plaques. So um, one of the connections between uh, cardiovascular disease and periodontal disease may be bacteremia. They think it's more having the pro-inflammatory cytokines in the, in the blood, but bacteremia can also be one of the links. Um, and just to hit on this, because I know some of you probably have some questions, about the recent AHA guidelines and some of the statements that they made. Well, in April of last year, the American Heart Association came out with a statement that said there's no evidence that periodontal disease causes atherosclerosis or heart disease. Well, that was a pretty strong statement and it's not true. That's why they came out in May and had another press release that was revised, but the April press release was already out there. So all the news and all the media and Dr. Oz and whoever all grabbed onto that and started putting that out there, and it's everywhere. If you Google it, it's everywhere. And not many of them, I had a hard time finding the exact phrasing of their revised news release. But after revision and the president of the American Heart Association had a big interview, um, and he went on and on and on to kind of backtrack and say, well, that was not really a correct statement, 
that there are lots of studies that show associations between the two, but we haven't found a direct cause-effect relationship. Well, yeah, periodontal disease doesn't, isn't going to give you a heart attack. There's no cause and effect. It's, you know, that's not the relationship. But having one condition can make you, you know, more susceptible to having another condition, or if you have a pre-existing condition, having a chronic inflammation can make it worse. That has been very, very well studied. So I just want to make sure that you guys don't have any questions about that news statement. Does anybody have any questions about it? No? Have, have you had your patients? Has any patients asked you about it? No? Really? It was on Dr. Oz. I'm not kidding. It was on like, you did? It was on like Good, Man, Good Morning America and the Today Show. It was all over the newspapers. Any like Reader's Digest or anything like that that people come through. I saw it in Self uh, Magazine. I saw it in um, Men's Health, which is a really good magazine. Um, uh, but in lots of different um, health-related magazines, there's like there'll be a little snippet, and it would just be like one of those little squares in the corner or something that oh you know uh, <clears throat> news release that uh, gum disease isn't related to heart disease, which is a very irresponsible statement for them to have made. But it's out there. If your patients ask you about it, now you know. Well, they actually did come back a month later and had a revision, but it wasn't publicized very well. Okay. Um, so some of the reasons why there's a lot of confusions. I mean, you guys, I think, pretty much know and believe that periodontal inflammation can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. But some of the reasons why it's kind of wishy-washy and it's really unclear is because people with heart disease, they also tend to be smokers. They also tend to be overweight. They're, you know, they tend to be diabetic. You know, there's a lot of different cofactors that are hard or impossible to separate out. We can statistically kind of look at the numbers and try to remove it statistically so it's not a factor and compare apples to apples, but it's not an apples to apples comparison. There's a lot of other factors in there that make it very, very difficult to study. Plus, you would need such a large scale to compare you know, people with periodontal disease, without periodontal disease, who have cardiovascular disease, who develop cardiovascular disease. It's just, it's really, really hard to study. So here's the official um, perio uh, statement that there is evidence to suggest that periodontal disease is associated with cardiovascular disease, but the causality is unclear. We, we're not quite sure exactly what that relationship is or how exactly um, it's caused. Again, there could be the bacteremia or the cytokines. Which cytokine is it? We really don't know, and we might never know, but there is a relationship there. With diabetes, I mentioned this, that TNF-alpha um, and chronic systemic inflammation increases insulin resistance. That insulin resistance means that you have poor glycemic control. And patients with type 2 diabetes with periodontal disease have worse glycemic control than those without periodontal disease. That's been very, very well studied. Um, and treatment of periodontal disease can significantly improve the HbA1c. HbA1c is the blood test that they take every three months to monitor the uh, status of their periodontal or their um, their diabetes, their glucose control. Do you guys know what that measures? Do you guys even ask your patients, if you have diabetic patients, do you ask what their A1C is? Yeah? What number should it be? Yeah, about less than seven, yeah. And they, they actually just two or three years ago lowered it to 6.5 to try to get it even tighter, yeah. But that A1C percent, what that is, that's the oxygen carrying capacity of your blood. 
Okay, so um, your red blood cells, when you have too much glucose floating around your blood because your other cells aren't using it, that insulin receptor is blocked, so you have too much blood, too much glucose in your blood. What that does is it actually adheres to your red blood cells, and your red blood cells can't carry oxygen that well anymore. That's why you can have um, neuropathies, and sometimes diabetics get ulcers, non-healing ulcers. Part of that reason is because their blood isn't carrying oxygen very well. And they test the A1C, hemoglobin, A1C, that's what the HB is. And um, those red blood cells, your red blood cells live about 90 days. They live about three months, and then your spleen makes more red blood cells. Once the glucose binds to your blood cell, it's like permanently altered. So you have to wait for them to die and, and to replenish. So they test your diabetes every three months because that's when you have fresh red blood cells and they're testing your oxygen carrying capacity, which is essentially how healthy your red blood cells are. So if you do it more than every three months, that's really not going to give you an accurate um, snapshot of where their diabetic control is. But if you do it every three months, it's a pretty good snapshot of where they're at. I've had a patient have an A1C of 14%, which is nuts, and <clears throat> after oh, about six or nine months, he was down to 8%. That's a huge difference, but you really can't see an improvement until you, you give it some time. Uh, so the official, again, AAP consensus statement, official perio statement is that there's moderate evidence to suggest periodontal disease is associated. Um, oh, wait, I thought I put the diabetic one up there. Oh, sorry, I got my slides mixed up. Well, this is the, the pregnancy outcome. But the official statement um, about diabetes is that periodontal disease is moderately related to, um, to diabetes and worsening glycemic control. And the reason why they can't say strongly is you have to have causality and have, and have direct, very, very clear evidence in order to say strong evidence. So um, when you talk about pregnancy outcomes, we kind of group preeclampsia and uh, preterm birth and low, uh, low birth weight babies, kind of clump that into one group of adverse pregnancy outcomes, although they are all separate entities. You can have a full-term low birth weight baby, or you can have um, a premature baby that's uh, full normal weight. So all those things, we just kind of cluster them together. <clears throat> but again, we're not sure on the causality how periodontal is, is related to it, but there's a lot of things that we found. Um, yeah, so when it comes to um, pregnancy outcomes, it's hard to study it, again, because of the cofactors. You know, smokers, um, if they drink a lot, if they're diabetic, these people have more adverse pregnancy outcomes. They have more preeclampsia. They have more miscarriages. They have more um, preterm birth. They have more complications with pregnancy. Um, so it's hard to say, is it, be, you know, their periodontal disease playing a role? What role, how strong of a role is the periodontal disease playing in these things? Um, but they've definitely found that women with periodontal disease have more complications during pregnancy. And they think that it might have something to do with the bacteremia. Again, you have direct bacteria in the blood. They found P. gingivalis in amniotic fluid of women with preterm birth. Um, and they also know, just in general, in the pregnancy journals and pregnancy articles and research, that if you have increased systemic inflammation, you have the increased cytokines in your blood, like prostaglandins and interleukins, that is enough to induce early birth and pregnancy complications. So if periodontal disease has been shown to increase these things and having increased levels of these cytokines 
can cause pregnancy um, complications, you know, there's the link. <coughs> um, preeclampsia, in a study, two different studies actually of preeclamptic women, 64% of them had periodontal disease. That's crazy. Um, they also have more attachment loss, but they're not quite sure how, you know, what the exact pathogenesis is. They can't put their finger on it. It's too hard to study. <clears throat> but it's been such a factor that a lot of dental insurances actually allow cleanings more often during pregnancy. Um, severe periodontal disease or at least three millimeters of attachment loss over 60% of the sites, that's the definition in that study. This study, I put the definition for severe periodontitis in this study because that's a pretty aggressive um, definition. These women had over 60% of their sites had more than three millimeters of attachment loss. That's pretty significant periodontal disease. And they had an increased risk of preterm low birth weight babies by 7.5 fold. That's more than smoking, that's more than alcohol, that's more than any other risk factor for pregnancy complications. Um, uh, 7.5. So this was a, an original study done by Offenbacher in 1996 and this is the one that made it into all those medical journals and really raised that flag like, hey, this is an issue, we need to pay attention to this. This is one of those first ones. Other conditions, you know, if this doesn't get your patient's uh, attention about why they should take care of their periodontal disease, <laughs> I don't know what will, but, you know, all these different things, arthritis, pneumonia, COPD, kidney disease, pancreatic cancer, erectile dysfunction, obesity, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, on and on and on and on, you probably, you know, hear about different links all the time of things that are possibly related to periodontal disease. And again, that link is the elevated systemic inflammation. So, I'm not done, but this is just to remind me. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about um, oral health, we've talked a lot about periodontal disease and um, uh, systemic disease, and now I'm gonna shift a little bit more and push it a little bit further into quality of life. I wanna take it all the way from malocclusion into quality of life. And one of the things that really got me thinking about um, health and systemic disease and you know, how that's related to overall quality of life was thinking about my grandfather. So I grew up in San Diego, we did, um, my whole family still loves, lives there, and I spent a lot of time with my family, very, very close with my family. Um, we spent a lot of holidays camping, we did a lot of camping, sometimes in the mountains, usually in the desert. And um, my dad and my grandfather were Eagle Scouts, I was a Gold Award, Gold Award Girl Scout, which is the equivalent of an Eagle Scout for Girl Scouts. So my dad and my grandfather and I used to do all sorts of stuff in the outdoors while my sisters and my mom and my grandma would be cooking and playing Yahtzee or whatever. <laughs> we'd be out on the trails and we'd be um, identifying, you know, scat, you know, poop, <laughs> what animal it was, looking at footprints, um, checking out all the, the plants and being able to identify what plant it is. Is that a toxic uh, berry? You know, is that going to be edible? Uh, learning about constellations and building fires. My grandfather taught me how to build a really, really good fire. And I remember this one day, we were out on the trail, and um, as we're identifying footprints and stuff of animals and snake tracks, we're also picking up a bunch of kindling and tinder to build our fire. We got back and we built the most awesome fire. I mean, it was perfect. Textbook Boy Scout fire. 
And I'd forgotten the matches, so my grandpa and I walked over to the tent to grab the matches. And I didn't know this, but my grandfather had poured white gas all over the fire that day. Usually we don't do that, we're not allowed to use it, but he cheated and poured it all over there. But he didn't tell any of us because he was kind of a prankster and he wanted to see our, our reaction when he tossed the match on there and it all lit up. Well, my grandma didn't know either and she just woke up from a nap in the motorhome. So she walks out and she sees our perfect little fire. We're not around. So she grabs a little clicker, right? <laughs> so she bends down and she lights it and whoom, I mean, like a fireball went up. And all we heard was her screaming and we walk over and she'd burnt all the hair on her arms. She'd burnt her eyebrows. Her hair was singeing. She was madder than hell. She was pissed. Uh, but that's the kind of guy my grandpa was, right? He taught me a lot and he was really fun and I was thinking about all these things because my grandpa died last year from prostate cancer. So when I was sitting there at the funeral and I was kind of thinking about all these memories that I had with my grandfather, I thought about how lucky I was that his cancer didn't take him and he didn't deteriorate to the very end because he battled it for 10 years. And during that time, I had so many special memories with him, like building the fire and camping with him and lots of other things, that very, very special memories. And I wouldn't have had that time with him if he hadn't been healthy. So I started thinking about how being healthy really improves your quality of life because you can go do things. You can spend time with your children, right? If you're not healthy, you can't. So it might be a little bit of a stretch you know, when you're talking with your patients about, you know, um, fix these crooked teeth to fix your gum disease, but it's really not if you think about it. It's about being healthier and having a better quality of life, right? So if they have straight teeth, they have a healthy mouth, and they can have a healthy body, and they can live a longer, healthier life. So <clears throat> if periodontal disease, it's not just about quality of life for your patients, though. And so I'm going to talk about how it can be quality of life for your doctors, your practice, hopefully you. Um, <clears throat> but if the prevalence of periodontal disease in the U.S. is 30 to 50% of the population, that means 30 to 50% of your patients probably have periodontal disease. And if they have periodontal disease, they probably have some of these contributing factors. They probably have at least one of these contributing factors that we mentioned. And these patients might not be the typical patients that you're talking to about Invisalign. We also found that 65% of adults have mandibular crowding. These should be straightened. Even if they don't have problems with them yet, they probably will. When you get older, you lose your, um, you know, your ability to floss and to tie a little string around your fingers and really get in your manual dexterity. That's the word I had blanked on it for a second. Um, you lose your manual dexterity as you get older. My grandpa had rheumatoid arthritis and his knuckles were all bent. He couldn't floss. And he had straight teeth, so they pretty much, you know, with, with the Sonicare, he was able to get in there pretty well. But if his teeth had been all crowded, he wouldn't have been able to get in there and get them clean. So <clears throat> when you're talking to your patients um, about oral health and about occlusion and malocclusion and Invisalign, I mean, even the Surgeon General has accepted and made a statement that it's definitely related to oral health and, well, and overall well-being. They also surveyed a bunch of adults, almost 3,000 adults in the UK. 75% believed that oral health improves your quality of life. Oral health is related to the quality of life. 
So this shouldn't be a hard sell for your patients. You know, they should understand that, you know, the link that you might need to help them with is malocclusion to oral health. They probably already understand oral health, systemic health, to quality of life. But you might need to help them with that relationship sometimes, though. So for the owner doctors that are here, um, <clears throat> if 30 to 60% of your current patients should be able to benefit from orthodontics, are you having this conversation with 30 to 60% of your, of your patients? I'm hoping that with some of the information and little tidbits that you've picked up today, that you can have this conversation with more patients than you usually do and start using it more in your office. If you can use it more in your office and help patients more, you're going to improve their oral health, you're going to improve the systemic health, you're going to help improve their quality of life, and guess who else benefits? You, because you're doing it more. You're having more cases. You don't have to have um, specific specialty training in orthodontics. You, know, you don't have to be an expert. It's, it's pretty easy, right? You're gonna, you learned this weekend you know, how to use it and how to implement it, but if you use it more, you can improve your quality of life because you can you know, have better production in your office. So some of the specific benefits of Invisalign over just orthodontics is that it's really, really good for perio patients because they can remove it and they can floss and they don't have to get under the wire. Um, <clears throat> the, it's predictable treatment, right? It's really good. You probably know more about this than I do after this weekend. 96% of patients that went through Invisalign are extremely happy with it and would recommend it to their family and their friends. So it's a really, really great tool. And don't just think about it as you know, straightening the teeth and creating a nice pretty smile, but start applying it more to improve the overall um, oral health and quality of life for your patients. So just, you guys know about this. You know, if you use it more, you're going to increase your production. It's okay. I got the five-minute sign, but we're good. Uh, <clears throat> so with this little cheat sheet and with what you learned today, go out there and help your patients, identify more of these factors, have these conversations with more of your patients than you usually do. That's it. Oh, I forgot my closing statement. So, in conclusion, <laughs> Invisalign, like your iPhone or your smartphone, if you haven't evolved to the iPhone yet, uh, Invisalign is an amazing technology that it can improve the quality of life for your patients and for you. There you go. That's it. <laughs>